0: Uh, I don't say this because I'm not ready to do this, but it's kind of astounding how little I care about anything at all in this moment. What do you <laughs> so mean? I, I just I just <laughs> kind of reached a peak apathy. Politically? Uh, yeah, sure. Let's go with that. And
1: other things <laughs> also, obvi- I mean, apparently.
0: Yeah, right. Just uh, This is – this is – I don't know. It's a slow burn that's been happening since middle school. So,
1: Wow, middle school. Go, you're going back a while.
0: I haven't been able to really care about things for a long time. Yeah, That's not true. I care. I care.
1: To a point. point. I think you care so much that apathy comes in as a defense mechanism.
0: I think that's probably true, but isn't that I mean, isn't that what we talk about or what we're talking about for most people? Is it just like a a moral or an emotional fatigue? Yeah. It's having to deal.
1: Yeah, I think so. I don't know. I mean, I read yesterday that uh, books – Barnes & Noble has reported that books with like dealing with anxiety are – Like sales are way up.
0: Okay. So see, I saw where you posted that article and um, I didn't click on it because I thought you were sharing an article that was, I don't know, 10 years old or something because it was Barnes & Noble. Oh,
1: yeah, because bookstores don't matter.
0: (laughs) Right. So I just thought, oh, maybe that's like an old study and now we can all look at it and say, well, of course. Things are better now. No, they're just worse, but we can pinpoint a time. Oh, I see. When it started,
1: yeah, they're definitely no, not better. No, this was this was posted on CNBC. Um, who I blame for most things? CNBC. Uh, August first, August first. Sales of books related to anxiety are up more than twenty five percent through this past June from a year ago, according to Barnes and Noble. The bookseller said, quote, we may be living in an anxious na- nation. <laughs> <laughs> we, we may be. Really? You think so? Why, why would it. that be? Mm. I I'll, wonder
0: why. I, I love those moments where someone needs a piece of data to tell them an extremely obvious thing. Yeah, I feel, like it, of, I feel like it happens at work all the time where it's just like, let's analyze the data for a thing that everybody already knows, but you, for some reason, need a data point to back it up. But yeah. i like, oh, well, our sales of books on anxiety are up, uh, so maybe people are, are feeling, feeling anxious. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah. Of course, they have to let us know about the market cap at the end of this article because – It's CNBC.
0: Oh, but that's kind of the point of the whole article, isn't it? I mean it's not just about being an indicator of kind of a a widespread social problem. It's it's about book sales. I mean that's what the article is about.
1: Yeah. There are still some customers looking for happiness, however. (laughs) Sales of books related to finding happiness climbed a whopping 83 percent from a year ago. Barnes & Noble said. Tennessee was the state with the biggest increase in interest in this particular category of merchandise. Finding happiness. Oh, that's gross. Is a merchandise uh, category at Barnes & Noble. I tell you what, it's not in a book, folks. It's well, not in a book.
0: I mean, no, because – Look how many books you – I mean that's ridiculous, right? That sales are up 83 percent on a category of books. Like you obviously didn't find it in the first book you picked up. Yeah. Like that one didn't teach you how to be happy. No. I mean I, I don't guess I can blame.
1: Why would you buy a book? Why would you buy a book on finding happiness when you could just get a Bible for free? (laughs) (laughs) that's what what i want to know that's what
0: you're yelling on the street corner
1: yeah that's what you should be doing
0: outside of a barnes and noble every saturday
1: right out in front of barnes and noble
0: yeah
1: happiness is not through these doors it's here in the bible Hmm. Mm. yeah i feel more anxious now than i did a year ago,
0: yeah, I'd say that's true for me too i I don't know, but I mean that's you know I made a joke about like going back to middle school and it being a slow decline and and um I like life for the most part. That's the caveat to what I'm about to say but yeah <laughs> yeah i've been, I've been dealing with anxiety like clinical anxiety since then sure so it's it I think uh, I think it takes a noticeable peak in that for me to note for for me to register a change like there there really has to be something right there's going on
1: like there's Which, always a, a background level right for you that's pretty high yeah even though it's so, man, managed right
0: yeah let's but. say that Um and <laughs> what? Uh, okay,
1: <laughs> that's a lie. We're gonna we're gonna choose to <laughs> we're gonna cho- choose to incorporate into our narrative for this podcast.
0: Yeah, I, I read a lot of books. Yeah, about it, and uh, I feel like I'm doing pretty good. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I would say the past year has been anxiety-inducing for sure. Um, But I've also felt a really interesting kind of internal counter narrative to all of that about how this is exactly the type of thing that I don't want to make me anxious, that I feel mad that this kind of whatever like world political event is the type of thing that can make me anxious. You know, like it, about- it, it's weird because it's the kind of thing that you would think very naturally should make a person anxious. I mean, we make enough, you know, movies about like apocalyptic conditions that it's like, yeah, that's the kind of thing that should make you anxious when, when the shit really starts to hit the fan. Yeah. You know, politically, socially, environmentally, whatever. Um, that's the kind of thing that should make you anxious, but it's exactly the kind of thing I don't want to make me anxious. Um,
1: well, okay, so because, what, what would it be what would it be an acceptable source of anxiety?
0: Because
1: um, I, I mean, your know. your brain is just like <clears throat> it's pretty good at just like creating anxiety for no reason, right?
0: Well, that's the thing. I mean, that's why I'm having trouble coming up with like what's an acceptable. Uh I mean it's that adjective right there that's hanging me up about what's an acceptable thing to get anxious about. Right. Um uh, because you know for me it could be just it could it could be a spider. <laughs> like, yeah. I, mean, I, could like, ruin my, I could ruin my world. You have over, like an
1: overactive like lizard brain, right? That's just yeah. like constantly looking for something to be anxious about. Oh totally. So when something like politics or you know um environmental catastrophe or whatever is 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 just as likely is it not to cause anxiety as the spider or no? Cuz I don't really deal with anxiety. I mean as a clinical diagnosis, I'm I'm you, more on the depressed side of you, an,
0: you you know what I think it might be? what I think I'm just, I'm just kind of sitting here thinking about it. It might be that the reason it pisses me off that that kind of stuff makes me anxious is because it's a very large external manifestation of a thing that I feel like I'm already dealing with, which is making problems for myself out of nothing. Yeah, sure. Like the political situation doesn't have to be that way. The environmental situation doesn't have to be that way. The, Mm -hmm. you know, Wearing and tearing of the social fabric. It doesn't have to be that. way It's people, you know, acting in a way that creates these problems, and it's like it doesn't have to be that way. And then I recognize, well, that's what I do to myself on a very small scale, right? Uh, and I am very annoyed with myself all the time. So now this except, is like,
1: except it's more annoying because like these these like su- su- systemic issues are. Uh, are solvable, you know, given, like, given tools that, like, given the will, um, to use the tools we have to face, you know, huge systemic issues like, you know, global warming. Like, this is not a, this is not a problem that is not, um, <laughs> That's totally intractable. I mean, it 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 is because of the way we have things set up and our total unwillingness to face the you know issue of a five degree Celsius uh, global temperature rise, which is going to totally upset <laughs> any kind of Everything. status quo. Yeah. yeah. But I, I mean, it it looks intractable from a certain perspective. But I think that <laughs> while while I think that. Um, it's possible for us to think our way out of uh, catastrophic global climate change, given the like the will. It's not possible for you to think your way out of an anxiety disorder.
0: Right. Right. Am I wrong? No. No. I think that I think that's fair. Um, yeah. You know, another wrinkle that I think is a part of that is that. Um, is that my religious sensibilities have changed hmm. over time and I no longer have the luxury of being one of those, these folks that can look at, um, you know, the number of things that are going on and think God is in control. Were you ever at one there? point? Yeah. Yeah. Like at when? one point, uh, Probably, uh, right before all the anxiety, (laughs) 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 honestly.
1: (laughs) Okay. Yeah. I Uh, I
0: was a, I was a pretty religious little kid.
1: So you were Um, like 12 maybe.
0: Yeah. Uh huh. And I really, I was just like, yes, God has this in the bag. (laughs) (laughs) And, and, uh, I don't know, something clicked and I was like, I don't I don't know about that. I don't I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if that's true. Interesting. I'm not saying that that like Do you think do you think your
1: um, psychological uh change over time? I like everybody goes through a big change around the same age that, you know, you started you started uh, experiencing anxiety, um, but do you th- – do you think that – I mean did – is it the anxiety issues that you have that led to – do you think there's a direct like correlation between between those two things that, that led to your sort of theological or philosophical change?
0: Sure. Yeah, I definitely think so. Yeah. Um- you know, and it's not—I I don't consider it kind of a, a unique happening either. I think, I think it's this way for anybody that ends up questioning um, their theological perspectives because something happens. Yeah. That shows them that the world is not oriented in the way that they were taught, or that the way they so believed. Um, and that—and that's really what it was. It was just kind of a a a, a wake up moment of. And kids come out of this in a variety of ways and in ages and circumstances. But it's it's like, oh, the world's not uh either as safe as I thought it was or it's uh it doesn't revolve around me anymore. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> like it seemed to before, you know. And so there's a lot of that going on. But then also there's the thing It's like, oh, this thing is kind of bad and it's happening to me and no one is stopping it and I can't stop it. Right. it it seems like a thing that there's really, truly no control over. And that was maybe the first time I had experienced that. And once you've wrapped yourself in the mantle of, you know, the theological position that God has a kind of, um, has a particular kind of omnipotent power Mm -hmm. and coupled with that you're taught, uh, God has a vested interest in you personally as an individual. Yeah. Right. It w- so, so once you've wrapped yourself in those two ideas, you know, all your life, you you've been taught that and you, you buy into that. And then something that comes along that shakes that up. Yeah. I'd say that's definitely a foundational moment. I mean, it, it kind of sparked me thinking about, um, uh, my theological position and, and I haven't stopped
1: well, and you you know it's interesting because you could have uh you know there's a way in which you could have doubled down on God's whatever providential uh, work uh in creation and in your life individually um I mean I think. I think people with this exact same or very similar kind of, you know, psychological makeup have just become fundamentalists.
0: You know, right? Well, and, you know, and, and become than, or become fun- fundamentalist in one of two ways. I mean, I, I see this as kind of a three prong thing that happens to that could happen to religious people who experience some kind of thing that shakes up their faith, and that is they double down, like you just mentioned, or uh they feel so violated and let down that they go the opposite direction and never want to talk about God again unless it's in the most bitter of terms yeah. or there's that kind of weird third path where you get curious about why things aren't the way you thought they were and you start exploring them and then you go to divinity school and Still can't explain to people why you did that.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, I, d- I definitely think that's something my, that's interesting. That's something my therapist talks about, you know, because I really resent the fact that I have to take uh, uh, an SSRI to feel like a person. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, I, every morning, I, not every morning, sometimes I take it, I just swallow the thing and I walk out the door, right? But. There are definitely times when I resent it. If I miss a dose, I certainly resent it. And my therapist is like, okay, like you can keep resenting it, you know, or you can get curious about the way you're set up and understand that part of, you know, feeling the way you want to feel means taking this drug. Um, And and to remain curious about that and to, you know, look into – you know, other things that are helpful and that kind of stuff. So um, <laughs> going into a mountain of debt, you know, uh, through Divinity School is maybe not advisable. But um, for anyone who's trying, I mean, I don't know. We met each other there and, you know, I'm thankful for that. Um, but I don't know if I would be doing anything so differently now than I – I don't know if I if if I'm on a complete if I it, it had that big of an effect on where my life is now than than where it was before I or the track that it was on before I went to div school um but you know who knows um the, the one thing I think is interesting is you've you know as we talk about these things is that we experience ourselves at a remove mm, like I can't yeah. necessarily feel any closer to my to the things that the way my whatever brain chemistry is set up is not so much closer closer to me as a phenomenon uh, as you know global politics like I, I would That's like interesting. to say, I would like to say they are and maybe there's a maybe there's a way that those things can be integrated you know through Spiritual work, or you know, whatever study, um, but I don't. I do think that we we all, you know, we have a self, and that, and we, but we also we also are a self, and so I, I guess there's some more kind of there's a there's a closer relationship there um, than I have to the fact that Donald Trump is president, but I Mm -hmm. don't feel like I have more control over the, the fear or anxiety that I feel, you know, from the fact that Trump is president and the fact that I have to take this, you know, little communion wafer every morning (laughs) so that I, so that I feel okay. You know, I mean, uh, I don't know. I, I, there it's just I don't know. It's just funny to be a person. I think you know. It's just well, it not, not and, funny. Ha ha. It's funny. Sob sob. But
0: right, <laughs> right. But do you? I mean, I I think you're going to say yes. This is why I'm floating it out because I mean because I know you and um. But I think that there's a compelling way to talk about the bridge between those two things. Um. Between that separation you were just kind of laying out uh, between the self and the world and the problems of self and the problems of the world. I mean, that's – that's the, the bridge is spiritual work, right? Yeah. The bridge is both the healing and connecting of the self on the one side of the bridge with um, meditation and spiritual practice and whatever that looks like for you. Yeah. Uh, spiritual formation and spiritual practice, I should say. And then on the other side, that translates to works in the world.
1: Uh huh. Yeah. I sure. mean,
0: uh, yeah. Um, so, so this bridge is the work that you're doing. Um, that's, that's not a huge comfort, but it helps me make sense of, you know, what, it helps me make sense of both my anxiety and what I feel like my response should be to it and i'm not saying that my response has been that to it yet perfectly what what's your
1: uh like gut level response to the fact this like fact of anxiety that you deal with uh
0: my gut level response is i mean it's totally lizard brain it's to run
1: hmm interesting
0: but What that's what that's kind of translated into over the years, um, and especially now that I have a a partner who likes to adventure as much as I do, is like the Mm. the impulse is to run to somewhere new and beautiful, and then I can imagine that I would be there for a little while, and then I'd want to run somewhere, you know? Yeah, it would it would be a just continual. Bouncing around, it's interesting. Um, I, I, that's the impulse. That's not going to work.
1: <laughs> yeah,
0: I, I, I recognize that, so I don't do it. But uh,
1: I, w- I want, I want to fight my depression. Like I would like to have a physical fight with it.
0: Um, that's interesting.
1: <laughs> I mean, it makes me want to destroy myself. Honestly, I mean, I'm not going to kill myself, but it, I wish that there was a way. I would really like to get my hands on it and just fucking destroy it. It makes me so angry. Um, and that anger is connected to a lot of other stuff too, you know, yeah. that we don't, we don't need to go into right now, but, <clears throat> but I do, I, I want to put my hands on it and strangle it to death.
0: Okay. Um, so how does that, and, and we can go, we can come back to me in a little bit and talk about like, how that impulse ends up translating into what I want to do with myself and in the world, Mm -hmm. especially given the rise in anxiety around current events. But what is your impulse to fight that piece of yourself? What does that end up looking like when you're acting out in the world during this time?
1: Well, I, I don't think it's a healthy response, um, Mm -hmm. for me or for anyone around me. And so I try to meet it with compassion, mm-hmm. um, and um, I mean, in in part, in part, the reason that I, you know, work with um, folks with you know similar challenges. I mean, more severe in many cases, but similar challenges to mine uh, psychologically. You know, homeless folks, folks who are addicted, and Marginalized in, in certain ways and, and all that care, like if I can care for them, I can care for myself. It's a way of meeting mm-hmm. my, it's a way of meeting myself, uh, in a way, um, you know, meeting my loneliness, meeting my neediness, um, and, um, kind of, you know, Giving away little parts of myself of my life uh, to other people who um, you know haven't done anything to merit that gift, but um, who nonetheless you know I think are deserving of my you know my time and my compassion and you know my help um, if i can if I can extend any kind of help or even just you know presence and um, silence. And so, um, I, I think there's a direct, direct way in which, you know, that, that angry response that I have kind of leads me to an opposite way of acting, uh, usually. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, <laughs> I mean, t- to be perfectly honest, like that, when I'm just like walking around, like there's a, there's a real, you know, depth of, of anger and hostility there, which I I just, it's like, I'm ashamed of it, you know? And, um, and and a lot of that stems from this, you know, from this feeling that I, it doesn't feel fair. I mean, that's kind of the, that's the basic level, right? Like it's not, it's not fair. Mm -hmm. And like, that's about as far as the sort of theodicy goes, uh, most of the time and um you know when i get self reflective and i'm talking to somebody like you who's like you know a- asking interesting questions i can go to a different level with it but in moment to moment it's a lot less pretty
0: well sure i mean that's the the ugly everydayness of just being a human yeah uh, that apart from our you know, more saintly examples in history, you know, most people are just coasting, you know, day to day with
1: Uh, with their baggage.
0: Yeah. So, and not exploring it and probing it and asking interesting questions to themselves or to others about it. And that's just, that's more rare than it should be. But,
1: um, so I think that unless you want to, you know, add anything else, I think we can kind of pivot to. Um, I, I do think these two things are related. That we can kind of pivot to, you know, what we talked about.
0: Yeah, talking about. Yeah, let's do it.
1: And okay. so, so some of this is kind of follow up from our last episode. Um, at the end, we kind of talked about, like, what is a compelling argument. Um. Mm-hmm. For someone who we experience, you know, with a misguided or opposite uh, moral, ethical, political orientation from our own. Um, And so I kind of want to talk about that a little bit. One thing we talked about in the last episode is, you know, that like arguing that Jesus is homeless, being a reason to care for homeless people is really not legitimate in our minds. You know arguing that he was you know uh a brown person for instance uh, is not a good reason uh, It's not a good reason to love brown people. there are better reasons right and right. and more um more compelling reasons for you know for people who we feel like maybe need to be convinced of this fact so <clears throat> um So to kind of get into that conversation, um, there's a tweet here by David Kleon, at David Kleon. And this was posted in May and I just grabbed it at that time because I thought it was interesting. And he says, um, I have this theory that – this is the quote. I have this theory that every liberal who feels the need to politely engage with conservatism in an attempt to find common ground has at least one close relative – Who is conservative and desperately wants to believe that relative isn't a monster? Um, so, you know, that's a pretty stark, um, argument. Um, it's not necessarily charitable, uh, to conservatives, and I don't think it's conservative to, you know, to, libs who you know, want to politely engage with conservatism either um but i thought you know maybe we could start there and see see what there is to say about
0: it yeah i think there's a i think there's at least a couple of levels that i that i could engage you know that statement on and on on the surface it is true to me so yeah i I uh, think so first first reading i feel it is true yeah um and, you know, that's because there are people that I love, uh, uh, deeply, um, that I am, I'm just positive that I know they voted for Trump and still don't have a problem with that. And I'm not saying that, you know, one uh, well, so that's surface. So that's surface. I mean, we can start getting into the to the uh, kind of other levels of that. But the surface is that um, there are some people that I know have taken political action that makes me very angry uh-huh. that are also like family, either are family to me or are like family to me. And I know that's – I know that that's what's happened. And – yeah, so the, there's a way of me thinking through how can I engage them still and still be in a relationship knowing that thing. Right. Uh, knowing that thing which I find disturbing. Uh, now we can start making all these caveats and distinctions about whether, you know, one such action is disturbing or, you know, we, we can start kind of getting into all that, but for me, it is disturbing. Um, I am disturbed by it. So, yeah. So I'm looking for reasons to kind of keep, (laughs) keep the relationship alive and, uh, and healthy through this period of just like stark difference.
1: Right. So, do you even engage it? Not really. Right, not really so.
0: because because I'm already going into it with an attitude and we can we can talk about whether this is a good attitude or not to have. It's it's not charitable, so maybe it's not a good attitude, but I'm I'm kind of already at a, at a place with it before that conversation would even start of there's not a good way that this would go. Yeah they're not going to have a thing to say in defense that is going to make me feel better about it. Right. So that's not a conversation I can have if I'm still going to be pleasant.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so that's where the tweet kind of falls apart with me. Like, I mean, maybe my cynicism, you know, sort of has sort of taken over, but like personally, I don't. I don't engage it. I think that most of my relatives either voted for Trump or abstained, um, mm-hmm. and and I have no desire to to engage them on the issue. None, because I have the same. Fear or uh, you know prior knowledge that the conversation wouldn't be good for either of us, right? And so, um, so I don't, so I don't engage the conversation at all. So I don't know who these people are. Who like it, it's hard for me to imagine someone who I guess has enough like hope or whatever. To like go engage their relatives, or mm-hmm. to engage to engage other people who aren't their relatives, in, in order to try to convince them of something. Like I, it just seems the whole project of trying to convince anybody of anything, honestly, with with like an argument, mm-hmm. like a rational argument in conversation, seems I don't know it's it just doesn't it seems like a useless waste of time to me
0: and me too and uh i don't know if that is way too cynical of me as well um because i definitely think you can make the argument that um you know to be in proper community with someone or a proper relationship with someone there's got to be an element of truth telling and honest, hard conversation. And maybe this is exactly the kind of thing that we should be talking about and hashing out. And, you know, I, I but it doesn't feel like that to me um, because I'm where you are and that I don't see that, I don't see that outcome. Uh, so to me, it is a choice between. Um, To me, it's a choice between, you know, arguing with somebody that I, I'm just positive I'm not going to change their minds or taking that, you know, what I feel is a pretty biblical tact and <laughs> dusting your shoes and, and just walking on, you know, which is not, not, not to say that I'm going to do that to my to my family, I I know some people have over all this. Yeah, um, sure. But but to me, it's it's more along those lines of there are people that you will not convince. Yeah.
1: Well, and there there was a a Facebook um, post by uh, Dave Barnhart, who is a Methodist pastor, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, he's awesome.
1: And uh, he said, "This is." On my birthday, June 27th, um, Jesus said, love your enemies. In the same sermon, he said, don't throw your pearls before swine. And we need to stop pretending that kingdom work requires us to convert those who hate us. Um, yeah, and I mean I think there's something to that, right? Like,
0: There's sa- definitely something to that.
1: Save your you know, wisdom. Save your um, the, you know, pearls that you have for people who seek it. Uh, In a a sense.
0: And it doesn't say keep your love from those enemies. No. That's not what it says. It is don't take up the impossible work of converting someone who doesn't want to be converted. Right. That is a different thing from loving someone who doesn't want to love you. Those are are not the same thing. (laughs) Um, Because one has a kind of logical piece that you can't move somebody through, Mm -hmm. um, which is the conversion piece or the convincing piece. But the loving someone who doesn't love you is you're not trying to get a response back out of that situation. Sure. Um, Yeah. So you're just doing the thing that you should be doing. So uh, to me, those aren't the same and that's why it's a legit, (laughs) point that he's making to me yeah just that you know you love your neighbor that includes your enemy but you're never going to be on the same page with everybody and you've got to spend that energy wisely
1: so so is it possible to see someone as a as like an evil monster and also and also love them you know i mean I I don't know. I mean because that that's how this David Cleon tweet ends. Like you desperately want to believe that your relative, right. you know, Uncle Bob or whatever mm-hmm. isn't a monster. And I I mean I I honestly don't know if it makes – voting for Trump makes you a monster.
0: Well I mean the this is the this is one of the um <laughs> I was gonna use the word drawback. Uh but yeah, I mean, this is just one of the the really just uh, you know tough shit positions of being a Christian, which is you don't get to paint people as irredeemable anymore, which is what a monster is.
1: Right. So, so I mean, lo- loving loving your neighbor, loving your you know Uncle Bob, in a sense means having enough. Uh, like holding him in enough esteem to to engage the conversation. Am I wrong?
0: I don't know, well, I guess it depends on what you mean by engage the conversation. Like I don't think that loving Uncle Bob means that you have to you know, sit there and listen to Uncle Bob rattle off what Alex Jones said about chemtrails yeah, that day. Right. Like that's right. you know, um, I don't think – it just means that you have enough imagination about the potential power and possibility of God that you believe Uncle Bob might come around.
1: Or that he's redeemable in some sense.
0: Yes. Yeah. You can still see Uncle Bob as a child of God even though he's over there spouting some noxious stuff and that is I don't say that glibly like that's you know you just put on your rose colored glasses and you see Uncle Bob that way that's not uh, the whole thing is work it's intense intense work I mean that's that is to me that is the biggest piece of our you know of spiritual formation is figuring out how to love my neighbor
1: Right. And I think, I mean, I think that it's important to recognize that like, I am not responsible for, for his reconciliation with, with God, (laughs) you know, or, or even, or, or even the reconciliation between the two of us.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing. That's why, uh, that's why we need to, to kind of draw a really sharp distinction here, which is that we're not, I'm not, and I don't think you are either, uh, so I'll speak for you, but we're not talking about this is why you should just go make peace with your oppressors yeah, or right. because it's not on you to get them right with the divine right you know uh that's where that comes into play mm-hmm. um, you know, and all this. Uh, it doesn't mean that people don't do monstrous things, but when you say somebody is a monster, um, if, if you step back and kind of strip the hyperbole and you still mean that about that person, that means that, um, that there is no room in your imagination for their redemption. Yeah.
1: It's a failure of imagination. That's right.
0: Right. So, Uh, That doesn't mean that you're the one to bring about that redemption. It doesn't mean that um, you have some personal role to play in that. You might, and you might feel like you do, and that's when it falls on a case-by-case basis about who you can talk to and how much you can handle and what kind of work you feel needs to be done. Uh, But it's going to translate to work for somebody. Yeah, right. I mean, for everybody, really, there's work for everybody to be done. It's just that your work might not be (sighs) trying to have some enlightening, logical conversation with Uncle Bob. That may not be your work. Your work might instead look like gathering with a more like-minded community to lift up the concerns of the marginalized in that community, you know, yeah. it, it, which won't involve talking to many uncle Bobs. Sure. So, yeah, but I think the first step to any of that is, I mean, at least for me, and again, I know people have gone through a lot harder stuff than me and this, uh, whole political environment has brought out a lot of pain for a lot of people. So, maybe they are going to look at somebody as a monster and there's nothing I can really do about that.
1: And I mean it's literally dangerous for some people,
0: right? It is. It is. So viewing the people inflicting the situation on you as a monster is is not a big leap. I get it. Um the what we're talking about is something specifically and and this is another caveat. We're talking about uh specifically Christian response too which is that the christian is called to do a thing and it doesn't mean that we're going to do it perfectly or barely even at all all. maybe yeah right (laughs) but it's it's the thing that's like well you're called to do it so you gotta figure that out right and so that's i mean that's what we're talking about here is that i think that that tweet both rang true for us because we've experienced it uh in our own um close relationships, but also I think it struck an odd chord with both of us because it's asking us to, uh, consider people in a way that we have kind of been formed in our spiritual lives to not consider people.
1: Boy, that's something. Huh? <laughs> I mean, as, as messed up as the church is, Right. As messed up as as, I mean, we're both came up in this you know Methodist Wesleyan thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, as messed up as it always, it's all going to fall apart, you know, in six months. Um, yeah, that's probably. True. But <laughs> no, uh, that's, that's true. I mean, let's not kid ourselves. Like it's oh, well, it's over for us. But uh, but I, <clears throat> I mean, the fact that like it formed us in this way, I think is I don't know. Evidence that there's some there's something there uh, I don't think it's worth fighting about as much as we do
0: <laughs> but um, but it is something,
1: yeah, it's something didn't cure my depression but